I'd like to welcome to the ATL Alts podcast, Michael Bradburn. Michael is the Managing Director, Absolute Return Portfolio Series at Soteria Capital. Michael, welcome to the ATL Alts podcast. Thank you, Andres. Thrilled to be here. I always like to hear the backstory for our guests. Help us understand a little bit about your background. I'd be happy to. I uh, started my career in the financial services business with uh, Morgan Stanley back in 2000. As, uh, as my good fortune would have it, I got my Series 7 license on the afternoon of February 28, uh, 2000. And as history would record it, the beginning of the bursting of the technology bubble started the following day. So I got uh, a real bloodbath in the uh, in the financial services business to start my career living through these market cycles that we've seen these tumultuous times like the technology bubble the credit crunch what we're going through now has given me and the members of our team an opportunity to enter the marketplace with a, a product that we think is very timely and utilitarian for what's going on in the in the macro economy right now more specifically it was quite a seminal moment uh, and, and one of those random things that changed the course of my life that got me into the life settlement business. If I may, uh, just for the purpose of context, let me define what a life settlement is before I get started. A life settlement is the sale of an existing life insurance policy by a policyholder, typically a senior insured, uh, seeking to render a price greater than the cash surrender value offered by the carrier for them to exit their policy. It's purchased for considerably less than the policy death benefit, but greater than the surrender value to maximize the economic value for the seller. Policyholders, uh, the insureds, are usually financially sophisticated individuals that bought policies for the ordinary reasons, estate planning, business protection, or to ensure some other risk and the need for their coverage no longer exists or is desired. Uh, demands generally greatest for policies on individuals of an attained age of 70 or greater, and typically these people have health histories exhibiting multiple comorbidities or health impairments. For the investor, they are purchasing the right to receive the death benefit, and through the subscription process, they fund premiums until that policy matures. So they're basically taking on the role of a counterparty in that life insurance contract in the place of the insured. The very first time that I became acquainted with the life settlement asset class, I happened to be visiting a, an estate planning attorney and quite innocuously, he answered the phone and it was an attorney uh, across town that knew he had had some, a lot of experience uh, in the estate planning business, managing life insurance policies. And uh, this was in about 2009 or 2010. Again, right toward the end of one of those tumultuous economic cycles that we went through during the great credit crunch. And a formerly very well-to-do couple had literally lost everything. Uh, the husband and the couple had cancer. The family had literally liquidated all of their assets and they were seeking advice uh, how to most profitably exit their life insurance policy, which at the time was a $5 million policy, I believe written on the Hartford that was purchased for estate planning needs while their, their estate had evaporated. So you have a couple that they're presumably their financial planner, their advisor, lawyer, you know, suggested an estate plan 
And part of that estate plan was protection and putting in place, you know, a, a life insurance policy that they were paying premiums on. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Because so, that's a fairly typical, you know, financial planning, financial uh, recommendation, if you will, um, is buying life insurance, especially as, you know, somebody's wanting to protect like a wealth that they've accumulated or built over many years, correct? That's correct. Okay. And if you're, so just for the purposes of the listener, so the insurance industry, everybody's familiar with, you go out, you buy, in this case, they bought a multi-million dollar policy. Correct. Got it. And they're paying premiums. That's also correct. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. So they're paying premiums and at some point something changed, something happened. Yes. Uh, they had be fallen terrible personal economic uh, and and just life circumstances that forced them to literally be faced with liquidating everything of value in their lifetime. And in many cases, this uh, this insurance that was originally purchased to an insure state an estate, the estate was no longer there. So they were seeking advice to uh, understand what their options were. Uh, the life insurance carriers have only ever offered really two exits from an existing life insurance policy. Uh, the first and least advantageous, uh, which unfortunately about $500 million worth of uh, life insurance evaporates every year because people just choose the option to stop paying their premiums and let the policy lapse. Uh, the second option is uh, if it's a, a permanent form of life insurance and has accumulated some form of cash value, uh, the insurance companies will assign a surrender value and basically liquidate you out of that policy. You can stop paying premiums and your coverage is no longer there. I think most people would understand the first option. You just stop paying and the contract expires and there's no benefit upon death. Yeah, Just like your house or your for car. Your, for your state. Yeah, right. Makes sense. Second option, a little bit more involved. You contact the insurance carrier. They give you, if you will, a value um, or there's value in the policy. Presumably you're seeing that in a statement. Correct. And so there's a value in that and they're going to give you a, a discount to the value in, in, in exchange for you surrendering the right to the benefit. Is that? That's correct. Okay. Makes sense. So those are, those are historically your two options. If you've got a $3 million policy, the estate is the beneficiary you've fallen on hard times, you've got medical expenses or you know something dramatic has changed. So you've got an asset with some value. You've got those two options. Are those the only two options? That's a great question, Andres. No, there's a third option. Oh, there is, okay. Yes, good question. Does the insurance company tell you about that option? Absolutely not. Oh, okay, got it. Well, I don't wanna lead the witness here, but I, <laughs> I'm I'm thinking we're going to get to sort of how the the the, the asset class that you you know that you're going to educate us on today how that kind of sort of came to be. Yes, the insurance companies depend on a very high lapse and surrender rate uh, as part of their business plan to achieve profitability. As a matter of fact, um, and you can find this in multiple citations uh, online, uh, but it's been said about nine out of ten policies that are ever originated, never actually pay a death benefit. Uh, a large segment of the insurance uh, that's sold is term insurance, uh, which is exactly what it sounds. You insure your life for a specific term. 
to cover some sort of a risk. And if you live beyond that term, then your coverage expires. Uh, the remaining third uh, is permanent insurance. And over the course of time and increases in cost of insurance and just the things that happen in ordinary life, as you just mentioned, changes in the estate planning laws have had a large effect. Economic occurrences uh, have forced a lot of people to uh, decide that their coverage is no longer economically viable or desirable. So a very vibrant secondary market, also known as the life settlement market, developed. This is a, a market where individual insureds can market their life insurance for sale to investors. And typically the opening bid is a surrender offer. Otherwise, the insured has really no incentive to sell their policy. Uh, so multiple bidders that take the place of investment platforms like Soteria Capital, endowment funds, family offices, large formations of capital have sought this asset class uh, because you're basically buying a fixed value in a life insurance policy at a discount. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to take you back to the, so you're a financial advisor with a big wirehouse. Your first exposure to this, you were describing a story, which I think we, we probably all would like to hear. How, how did that, what did that couple do? They're sitting with the estate planner or, <laughs> or, or you? Like, I'd, I'd love to hear how that played out. Actually, they had phoned their attorney uh, and they were going through their remaining assets because their intention was to file bankruptcy. And the attorney, because of his affiliation with my friend, uh, said there might be another option. So we picked up the phone and I happened to be sitting across the desk from my, my friend, the estate planning attorney. And he kind of from a high level walked through the process. So there's a vibrant secondary market where we can put your policy out for bid and uh, certainly no promises, but uh, there's a high likelihood that you can sell your policy for an amount greater than the insurance company is offering. And at the time, specifically on that policy, I remember the surrender offer was $220,000 on this $5 million policy that I believe they had paid premiums on at the tune of about $85,000 a year for over 15 years. So wow. there's a tremendous amount of sunken value in previously paid premiums. And at the time, um, they'd lost their health insurance. Uh, the husband is literally on his deathbed and his wife is in the emotional state that you would expect her to be literally devastated. And quite frankly, the first conversation we had with her was, uh, was pretty contentious. You know, some, some guy from a investment company and attorney show up and say, we're here to help. And she's like, yeah, right. 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 I could imagine how that conversation, you know, from her perspective is like, I'm at my most vulnerable state. My husband is severely terminally ill potentially. And, you know, we, we've basically got nothing left, no assets left. I mean, that's the, that's what I'm envisioning. Yeah. And she's like, well, I presume you're here to steal what's left. No, ma'am, that's, that's not the case at all. You're obligated to absolutely nothing. We're going to attempt to market your policy through channels, uh, you know, networks that we have of investors that have an appetite uh, for this, this asset class, this little known asset class. And I said, if you don't like what we have to say, um, it'll cost you nothing but your, your time in this conversation. So without boring you with the details, we went through our ordinary due diligence process uh, utilizing a licensed provider. Uh, in the life settlement space, a provider is the individual that holds the licenses in the states where individuals want to sell their policy. That individual is responsible for maintaining the, uh, the transparency and reporting uh, 
to, to make it legal. They are the, the public facing entity. So we connected with a provider, went through our process, ordered life expectancy reports. And uh, to cut the story short, we were able to ultimately sell it to one of my friend's clients who was extremely well-to-do that paid $850,000 for the policy. So the part that was the, uh, the most emotionally moving to me was we went back to meet this rather contentious lady and she expected us to say, you know, we'll offer you $225,000, $230,000. And we told her, uh, we've got a potential bidder for eight fifty. dollars The woman literally fell to her knees. She, she uttered something to the tune. It's like I, I'd given up hope. And you're offering me something that's going to allow us to live out what remains of my life with my husband. And he can live his last days with some degree of dignity. It was that seminal moment where it all became very clear that this asset class was unlike anything I had ever seen. Virtually anything that you can invest in is subject to volatility. It's subject to economic influences. It's subject to the things that you can't foresee coming. I don't know what comes to mind, maybe COVID. Our financial way of life uh, comes into question. Any of those things that if you live long enough, you will experience. And this asset class, because it is a legally binding contract with a U.S. legal reserve life insurance company, is what makes it so valuable as a risk mitigation tool for investors in their portfolios. I was really quite moved and I've dedicated the rest of my life to uh, to spread it, spreading this word. I would imagine folks have different levels of experience from, I guess, from an investor or if it's a financial advisor, somebody in, in the asset management business about their understanding of, of the life settlements business. So you've given us a, ni- a nice background. You talked about some states where there's licensed providers. Sounds like there's some laws and regulations around the asset class, but like how, how big is it? Is this like a dark shadowy corner of the financial industry? I mean, life insurance is huge. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a massive industry, but this particular part of, of, of the industry, I'm, I'm just curious to maybe get some context. No, that's, that's a great question. There's multiple statistics out there, but the amount of life insurance that's for, in force in the United States uh, is north of $30 trillion. It's bigger than the economies of most countries. And uh, the insurance companies would be happy for this segment of the business to stay locked up in that dark shadowy closet that you referred to uh, in that the life settlement industry is contrary to their business plan. As I mentioned, those high lapse and surrender rates uh, are a large part of the insurance company's uh, profitability. The life settlement market is regulated in all 50 states in Puerto Rico. 20 to $30 billion of individual life insurance policies are traded every year in the secondary market. And it's insurance is, a, is kind of a dark and murky place. Most people spend more time planning their vacations than they do their insurance needs because it's a very complex actuarially based industry. And uh, there's only a scant few individuals that get turned on by such things as we do, like life insurance policies. Well, and, and the other thing is, it's like I, I've, I've talked with people throughout over the years in my time in, in the alternative investment business about life settlements. Um, and, and you'll hear kind of like 
I don't want to compare it to crypto, but you know, you'll hear people have a stronger reaction to a certain asset class. You know, they'll either say, "Oh, that's really something I, I just that that seems like they're preying on the, the the sick and the dying." Or you'll hear people, you know, with crypto say, "I don't understand it. It's the black box, right?" So, I personally started ATL Alts because I wanted to seek out folks like yourself in the business doing what they're doing, building a company, running a fund, and allow them the opportunity to talk about it, educate us, inform us, hopefully, you know, to some extent, if you're, you know, a founder, inspire us. And so this is this, this podcast is really about an opportunity to sort of peel back, you know, the curtain and, and really understand it from not what did my friend say, what did I read, but really how's the math work potentially? I mean, because if you're an investor trying to make money, right, then you might want to understand, you know, the math behind it. You might want to understand the fact that what, what are those characteristics? So that, that's what I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be able to dive into today. In simplest terms, I mean, let's just get the, get the meat off the bone right there. Uh, you're buying dollars receivable in the future at a discount. That is a sea change from pretty much anything else that you can invest in because you ordinarily go into a, an asset class, you know, buying stocks, uh, buying real estate, uh, investing in venture capital, tech funds, you name it. You start off at your cost basis and your hope is there'll be positive price action and appreciation in the asset class to generate a profit. By contrast, with a life insurance policy, you're buying a fixed value at a discount. You know the day you buy it, what your profit margin is. So, in terms of financial planning uh, and understanding where your risks lie and the potential for losses, uh, you can bank capital in advance uh, of those unforeseen circumstances: markets crashing, uh, pandemics, uh, just the ebbs and flow of, of economics, and you know the, the specter of the Federal Reserve right now that's you know killing us on two fronts. Not only by raising rates, but extracting liquidity from the economy uh, is going to have, in my opinion, a devastating effect in the months to come. And having some surety and permanence in what you're investing in, uh, we're finding is having a tremendous appetite uh, in that you've got the comfort of knowing at least something is going to happen. Now, you brought up a really good point. Uh, people either have one of two reactions. They either get it and go, sounds great. Or they say, this is slimy. This, this, this has a, a morbid feel to it. I don't like the idea of betting on someone's death. I said, well, uh, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not selling puts and calls on when someone's gonna die. You're not, you're not betting. This is this an eventuality that we're all going to face. What you're actually doing is providing liquidity to a senior that has a desire to sell an asset. And I'll typically say, what if, what if this was a family member? What if this was your mom? What if this was your grandma? And she had an economic burden that was causing uh, distress in her personal budget and she wanted to get out from under it. Wouldn't you want her to render the highest economic value she could get or he could get? And then it quickly turns. I said, the, the entire basis of the life insurance business is based on uh, mortality and morbidity. Uh, yeah. So doing nothing more 
than putting a little twist on the, the traditional system. So you're just creating secondary market liquidity, if I understand it. But w- what is the actual investment opportunity for, for, uh, for individuals? Like, where does it fit into the portfolio? This is a fixed income alternative. Yeah. Um, life settlements, as I mentioned, are purchased at a discount to a stated, stated face amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're say you're buying a one million dollar policy from an insured, uh, and all in you may have a cost basis of around 60, 62 cents. So when I really need to cut through uh, the muck with someone, it's like I'll I'll sell you a dollar for sixty two cents. How many of them do you want? Yeah. Gotcha. Well, when do I get my dollar back? Well, I don't know. Yeah. They're very highly educated guess. The one common metric. Uh, that's used in pricing life settlement policies is a life expectancy assessment. There are specialist companies out there that uh, perform both probabilistic and deterministic pricing methodologies that include a full medical review. When when an insured wants to sell their policy, they sign a HIPAA form and they get all of their medical records from their doctors. In some cases, they'll interview those doctors and they make an assessment on paper of, of everything that's involved in their lives, all of their health impairments, all of their prescriptions, their lifestyle. Uh, and that renders a life expectancy assessment. That assessment, when it's, it is returned, is the 50-50 probability in the determination of the assessor uh, of that individual's lifespan. Basically, if you're looking at a bell curve, this is the apex of the curve. And that's based on comparing similar health impairments and lifestyles with thousands, if not millions of other health records, uh, and then applying a uh, morbidity or a mortality multiplier. Uh, In other words, a perfectly healthy 75 year old versus an individual that has multiple health impairments, that uh, mortality multiplier is basically a debit to the account. In other words, based on the life, ex- the the actual life ex- experience of individuals suffering similar impairments, um, this was their lifespan. So that's a complex uh, subject in and of itself, but let's just call that a highly educated guess. So to to come up with a value, that life expectancy assessment basically is a proxy for the investor's expected holding period. So it would, as logic would follow. Uh, someone with a shorter life expectancy, those policies tend to uh, draw a premium. And for those policies that have a little longer life expectancy, in other words, a, a longer holding period to construct a receipt, uh, those policies can be purchased less expensively. So our, our project here, our objective is to combine multiple policies of males and females, predominantly more males than females. Unfortunately, we don't get to stay around as long as, as women do. Yep from a statistical standpoint. So the portfolio is typically weighted 70% male, 30% female, or thereabouts. Uh, multiple carriers. So we take uh, the, the credit risk out of, the, out of the, uh, the equation and varying life expectancies and face amounts. So within each portfolio, uh, we diversify those policies as well as the major diversifier here is you're, you're really only investing against one risk. And that's the lifespan of an individual. If you invest in anything else, there's more than one risk. There's economic risk. There's interest rate risk, market risk, volatility risk, and all types of unforeseen things 
like Steve Jobs got cancer. Uh, that had a dramatic effect on Apple's value because the leader was not going to be there anymore. Uh, stocks, real estate, fixed income investments are subject. I think I can fairly say with certainty more than one risk. You gave this example of this, this couple. They had a lot of value. They could have surrendered the policy. They sold the policy was there was liquidity. They were able to sell. They got a, a substantial amount more than what they anticipated getting. Was that the beginning of, oh, there's a company to build here? Or can you walk us through kind of that journey and sort of the, the background of, of what you guys are executing on now at Soteria? Uh, yes, that business plan started when the phone hung up. Yeah, I bet. Uh, the light the light bulb went off in my head. Uh, as I mentioned, my my first six months in the registered securities world was a bloodbath. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, I had a very auspicious beginning. I entered the securities industry in my mid thirties. Uh, I already had a very well developed uh, network of people that put their faith in me, and I. Uh, dutifully cut most of them in half in the first six months I was in the, in the business because I, I went at it the way I was taught. You build diversified portfolios, multiple asset classes, and all the things that you know to, uh, to mitigate risk. And they all said, well, as long as it's all technology, I'm a buyer. Wow. And unfortunately, I succumbed to the course of least resistance and put most everybody in a fund that our company was sponsoring that uh, basically imploded by... August of that year, and I effectively cut all my friends in half. I bet those were tough phone calls or Christmas uh, Christmas uh, get-togethers. No lie, I still wake up sometimes in the middle of the night with with nightmares of that that just one phone call after another that I'm the worst person on earth. When I saw this asset class, I said, "This this has only one way to go. You're you're taking on." this investment as a counterparty in a contract that has no, no example of its failure in its history. There is, there's not one cited case of a legitimate enforced contract that did not pay a death benefit at the time of an insurance passing. That's verifiable online. During the Great Depression, over 9,000 banks failed. Not one US legal reserve life carrier failed. The legal reserve system is the backstop to the life insurance industry. That's uh, monitored and controlled by all state insurance commissions to assure that uh, a portion of the premiums that are paid are segregated in reserves to pay those claims. Uh, there's a system in the event of a, of a failure by a life insurance company for other life insurance companies in the same state to absorb their assets and liabilities and carry on their coverage. Uh, without changing it. And that actually happened in my own life. Uh, my mother and father purchased uh, life insurance as part of their estate plan to protect my sister and I from a company called Executive Life, which failed in 1995. The policy paid out at my parents passing through Phoenix Life, who absorbed the assets and liabilities of that company. And the continuity of the contract was exactly as it had been written some 25 years previously. That type of financial charter uh, only exists in the life insurance industry. Everything else uh, is less so with the exception of the full faith and credit of the US government. How did you start? 
Well, uh, the attorney that uh, I was I was friends with, we started a company called LifeShares, and we were representing the um, <clears throat> provider, and we were we went out trying to find uh, investors to take on a fractional share of a single policy, and uh, it was a very short period of time before I realized uh, these policies should be aggregated in portfolios. Uh, there's simply not enough uh, risk spread in a single policy because uh, life is random. Uh, very healthy individuals drop over dead for no reason at all all the time. And very sick individuals uh, live and linger for long periods of time. And it's just too much risk to invest in a single policy. So basically in the same vein that a mutual fund. Uh, would diversify a portfolio of, of multiple assets, multiple stocks, simply applied the exact same regimen to the way we build portfolios. But the way we got into the business was as a service provider. There were various uh, sponsors that wanted to sell this asset class to their investors, but they lacked the knowledge uh, in the insurance industry to build and, and manage the, the underlying infrastructure. So we basically had contracts with our sponsors uh, on two levels. One is to uh, identify, perform all of the due diligence and acquire policies uh, for these sponsors. And they would be responsible for setting the parameters of the portfolios they wanted in terms of how many policies, how much face amount, how much capital they want to raise, what's the male to female parity, uh, the minimum credit rating of the carriers and various other metrics. Through term sheets, we would devise uh, that agreement and then we'd aggregate on that basis. Um, the sponsors had full control and full transparency to accept or reject any contract that we ever put before them. Uh, and when we got into the business, it was incredibly robust. For every policy that we actually transacted, we would review between 50 and 100 policies. Uh, since, uh, since that time in 2012, when we got started, uh, the market has changed considerably. It's still a highly unknown asset class. I'd guess if you interviewed people on the street, maybe eight out of 10 would say, oh yeah, you're those J.G. Wentworth guys. It's like, no, that's not what we are at all. Uh, we're not selling structured settlements, we're in the life settlement business. Uh, so it's still, it's still a bit of a specter in the collective conscious of the ordinary investor. So our purpose, throughout has been to educate. And quite frankly, this is the most boring, mundane asset class that you will ever see. Once you acquire a life insurance policy, you throw it in a drawer and then a tracking company uh, that we hire independently of us that, that monitors databases and social media and the uh, social security databases will inform us that an individual has passed away. And then we manage the process of applying for the death benefit. And one of the things that makes uh, our business model unique is the investors are the direct recipients of their fractional share or their pro rata share of every policy. Uh, it doesn't get funneled back through a fund. Uh, it doesn't go to cover anything. It goes directly to the investor. So we like to say that this business model is a, a direct pay private equity styled ownership structure. Uh, we take ourselves out of the loop as much as possible. So we've tried to devise the business plan in such a way that investors are buying an asset that they own, they control, and they're the direct recipients.
And that is the best way for all of the clients that we serve to get all the meat off the bone for the investor. How competitive is it to, to get the, the types of policies that you want? Uh, it's extremely competitive. It's a very small universe. And there are many players that have come and gone. Yes, uh, like I said, it is, it is a very highly specialized practice. Uh, and there's just not that many idiots out there like us that, that get turned on by life insurance. It is becoming more competitive, particularly since uh, capital is seeking safe yield more so now than ever, uh, given the fact that the equities markets are in distress, uh, the fixed income markets are in the worst shape they've been since the late 1800s. Uh, real estate is coming under pressure. You know, as well as I do, capital seeks its highest level. So when people begin to get creative, the asset class has taken on uh, more of a shine and there are more players, uh, more non-traditional players in the space than ever, but still it's a it's a $25 billion a year market segment that no one's ever heard of. What is the time frame? Talking five years, 10 years, 20 years? I always like to draw the comparison to the risk-free rate or a 10-year treasury. Certainly not as safe as a 10-year treasury as it's not backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. But it is backed by a long-standing, uh, so far uh, sterling reputation of a business segment in the U.S. life insurance market. We always start the conversation off with, you certainly can provide for your own liquidity needs from other sources. And if you're interested in anything other than a mid to long-term investment for preservation of capital and to make safe risk-adjusted yield, uh, if those parameters don't fit your lifestyle, this is not for you. The, the best way I can describe the asset class is it's a, an absolute return with an uncertain holding period. That holding period is uh, alluded to by life expectancy uh, assessment, but that is in no way guaranteed. The only guarantee involved is the fact that none of us are sticking around forever. And people that are unfortunately less healthy than others have a higher probability of making an earlier exit. So unlike a 10-year treasury bond, in order to uh, usurp the entire yield uh, by coupon of that investment, you have to hold it to term. A life settlement uh, has the opportunity for upside surprise. The shortest period of time that uh, a life settlement has been held by, by one of our clients was 10 days. Uh, in the very first year that we were in business, we had contracted three different insureds that did not sign the contracts and passed away. Uh, so the, the randomness of human mortality works for and against you in this asset class, but it, it plays out in terms of a factor of time. And time weighs itself equally uh, across all asset classes. It certainly happens from time to time that you invest in something and it doubles overnight. But more traditionally, time, earnings, the maturity of companies is what creates that positive price action and creates your return. So uh, we feel that this asset class and any other, time is, is equally weighted. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of you know, mitigating risk through how you call it architect, the, the, the partners and the vendors and the groups that are helping you to execute on, on acquiring profitable policies? What is, if, if that's the right characteristic? No, certainly. 
we seek uh, the very best in class outside counterparties where we, we lack that knowledge ourselves. So we work with uh, a provider uh, out of New York that's been in the business for over 20 years, cut his teeth with Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan Chase, that's Life Trust, uh, is the name of the company. Uh, this was back before the uh, enactment of Dodd-Frank and uh, you know daily mark-to-market valuations when the investment banks could buy this asset class for their own, for their own books. Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, being the insurance guru that he is, recognized the value in this in Berkshire Hathaway uh, very early on. So where the rubber meets the road is due diligence. Uh, having exposure to multiple policies and understanding the projected to actual performance of policies in terms of the lifespan of individuals with these, uh, with the regimen to understand the effect of health comorbidities over time is, is really where the rubber meets the road because the critical part in this equation and quite frankly, our, our primary benefit to the market is in managing the premium cycles. Universal life contracts were designed in the 70s to give, in, to give insured some flexibility. Policies were designed with you know, riders involved, you know, no lapse guarantees, living benefits, you name it, uh, to come up with nice high target premiums that were designed by the insurance agents, uh, largely for their ability to control their own, their own commissions. A universal life policy has the ability to be deconstructed so the premium can be optimized down to its minimum cost of insurance. So the only thing you're buying is the death benefit. And that's really what we're good at. Managing those premium cycles uh, is key because a policy has to be in force at the time of the insurance passing and all premiums paid to date in order for the insurance company to pay the death benefit. And that is really where the heavy lifting is done. The premium reserve management system is a multiple uh, risk mitigation strategy. The first hedge is that we seek the opinions of three different independent life expectancy assessment companies. They all have their own proprietary algorithms, their own medical and uh, you know probabilistic pricing methodologies. And we find that the mix of multiple life expectancy companies to come to uh, an average or a mean life expectancy uh, is the first measure in that uh, this is not an exact science. It's a, it's a best educated guess by some extremely intelligent people. However, life is random. Uh, so it's, it, it's a best guess. So we take those, those three opinions and, and determine an average life expectancy. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, life expectancy is the 50-50 probability of the half-life of that lifespan. So included in a, uh, an investor subscription is an additional two years of that optimized premium on a standard uh, life expectancy curve as the life expectancy company, uh, assessment companies determine it. Uh, that's targeted at the 85th percentile of probability at LE plus two years. So we're putting the investor uh, in, in the fourth quartile of the probability of those policies uh, will have matured, which is a nice way of saying someone died, by the time frame that we've set aside premiums. Let's say you're dealing with an average life expectancy of five years. Part of your subscription is seven years of that optimized premium. 
Uh, we treasury manage those premiums with an outside money manager to uh, create additional yield during the period of time uh, that those dollars are under management that elongates our premium paying ability. So uh, the exp expectation, and this is certainly a function of the markets that we invest in, that we can pay premiums beyond LE plus two or advancing beyond the 85th percentile. And in the event that an individual passes away considerably early, like that individual that, uh, that passed 10 days after he sold his policy, all those premiums remain in the premium reserve management system as a safeguard or an umbrella uh, for all those policies that do not perform as expected, i.e. the ones that suffer from extended longevity, which by definition is someone living longer uh, than their assessed life expectancy. So we very much have tried to mimic the insurance industry in the manner in which they safely manage those premiums to uh, make certain that there's liquidity to pay those premiums to maturity. What have you seen from investors and the reaction, if you will, to this portfolio approach? Well, I'm being funny, but my favorite question of all time that I'm for, unfortunately I've heard more than once is, <laughs> what happens if no one ever dies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of nuance to it. First yeah. and foremost, uh, most traditional ad advisors have a discipline. Uh, you know, you, you've got your your stock guys, you got your fixed income guys, you got your real estate guys. They have a tendency to be very monogamous with uh, with certain asset classes. So the first hurdle is to kind of unwind their um, their particular bias because they try to make this fit in a box that's familiar. So it it takes a little bit of uptake, and unfortunately, and fortunately. Uh, the smarter the individual that I'm talking to, the more difficult it is for them to just understand the <laughs> simplicity of this. We complicate things, don't we? These people, people in our industry, it's 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 silly, unfortunately. People... Well, we've got all this time and education and and everything invested, and we we want to be that that brainiac for for those that don't have all day to sit around and understand money and economics and things like that. And it's very difficult for some of these people to say, this is just too simple. What's, what's the catch? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. There, there's no catch. Right. It, it's, it's simple. So like yeah. I'm selling you a dollar for less than a dollar. How right. many do you want? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no lie. I actually had a meeting last night with a South Korean nuclear scientist and it literally got down to an argument because he was certain that he could unwind uh, the complexities of assessing life expectancy and be more efficient at this. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> Google, Google failed at that. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, Sergey Brin couldn't handle this when you're not going to figure it out because people won't follow suit. Yeah. Everybody can... has the greatest desire in their life is to live as long as possible. And you know, you, there's no way to assess the size of the fight in that dog. Yeah. However, that's true. The probabilities are in your favor that it's not going to last forever. Yeah. So if you can if you can account for your liquidity needs and your ability to live your lifestyle from other sources of capital and you've got plenty of time and you are interested in preserving capital and earning safe, predictable yield, this is for you. If you want to unwind all of the uh, the the history of mankind and come up with some algorithm, I died. I'm sorry. I, yeah, no, I can I can imagine you you probably have found yourself in some really interesting conversations. What 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 gets you excited about you know what's ahead? 
well, this, this investment is not for everyone. I am a huge student of investor psychology and uh, all the things that I've learned in the long, strange trip that I've taken to get here. Uh, we find that this asset class has a very specific purpose for very specific people. And the more people you talk to, the more you find them. Uh, I know a lot of people are glued to the TV all day, listening to the both sides of the argument from the talking heads. And when they're done, they're more confused than ever. And most people just want some surety in their life. And I always go back to the very first client that, that I ever had. And I can still see the look on her face when she realized, you know, I've, I've been saved to a degree. And as investor psychology goes, most people will regret missing out on an opportunity more than they will memorializing a loss. And this asset class is a natural, um, organic risk hedge because the, the mechanism is entirely different than anything else that you can invest in. And our mantra from the beginning is let's be the absolute best at one thing. You know, we don't sell oil and gas. We don't sell conservation easements. We sell life settlement portfolios and they do what they do. They yeah. hedge risk. And that's what turns me on. I, quite frankly, it's, it, it gives me purpose. Uh, and that's something that I never had as a licensed financial advisor because I, I had to, I had to play the company line, you know, in my very first experience, the company threw me out, you know, threw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You know, they're saying, go raise capital from the private sector while we're shorting the sector so we can convert that private money to institutional money. Mm. And I, I, I felt very violated by that. I took personal responsibility for not knowing in advance which direction the economy was going to take. I hated calling investors and saying, you know, you, you sustained a loss, but stay invested. This will turn around, you know, and that, uh, that old, you know, water cooler joke, you know, I, I've never been wrong, but my timing's been off. doesn't make me laugh anymore. Sure. Uh, especially for people in advanced age, not only the life insurance policy sellers. I mean, I, I know that the social good that we're doing by creating liquidity for seniors, particularly the ones that really need it, uh, is a good thing. But in, in comparison to all the other things that, you know, many financial advisors ultimately have to apologize for, this is not one of them. Mm, interesting. What are the final thoughts that you want, you know, people that are sort of listening to this podcast have never heard of life settlements, have never thought about it. Maybe they don't even own insurance. What, what are the first things that, you know, they can start to do to sort of get informed? Great question, Andres. We have a website, which is at www.soteriacapital.com. That's S-O-T-E-R-I-A-C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Uh, we have a blog that we publish uh, on a biweekly basis that's always designed around current economic circumstances and how life settlements might help in asset allocation, uh, might help assuage the anguish that you're feeling from uh, the talk of potential recessions, uh, and basically just a broad educational base to understand the asset class. Correspondingly, you can call us at 404-502-5525, and we'll talk your ear off like we have with you today, Andres. Uh, that's hey. what we'll do all day, every day. There's, there's a lot of moving parts, but our mantra in the beginning and remains this day is to be 
the best infrastructure to acquire and manage life insurance policies and diversified portfolios for investors to preserve capital, earn safe yield. And there's lots of choices out there. There are a lot of open-ended funds that manage their businesses considerably differently than we do. But at the end of the day, all the liquidity comes from the policy. So anything we can do to drive costs down and put the investors in direct control of an asset uh, that they'll ultimately profit from is the ultimate objective of Soteria Capital. We're, we're trying to be as fully transparent uh, and informative to our investors so that they get real value uh, from using this asset class for what it was originally designed, and that is just manage risk. The, the, the entire purpose of ATL Alts is, again, to educate and inform and, and inspire through conversations with founders, investors, asset allocators, um, and, and folks like you, Michael. So I really want to thank you. My guest today was Michael Bradburn, Managing Director um, of the Absolute Return Portfolio Series with Soteria Capital. Michael is really an informative and educational conversation today. I, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to sort of peel back um, the curtain, if you will, and you know get to know uh, you, what you guys are building at Soteria uh, Capital, and, uh, and most importantly, hopefully provide insight to people that are curious and interested and uh, want to know more about, about this asset class. So thank you. Andres, thank you. We, uh, we're thrilled to be part of your wonderful podcast, and we look forward to our next conversation. We'll do it soon. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.